0: Damn straight.
1: Alison just cut out for me for a minute then. Was it just me or did she cut out for John as well?
0: Well she cut out for me, but I'll hear what she said when I'm editing. So
2: And he doesn't care that much, so he I know. just take a
0: very long view of these things, Liz. I'm like, <laughs> one day I will know. Hello everyone and welcome to the 12th episode of Octothorpe, a podcast about science fiction and science fiction fandom. This is the episode for Thursday the 20th of August. I am John Coxon.
1: I am Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Betty.
0: And we are not in Liz's house. This is true of all three of us this week.
2: This is the bit where Liz tells us she's having a fantastic beach holiday and we go, oh, yeah, no, we quite fancy a fantastic beach holiday. Thank you very much. But it's not about to happen anytime soon, (laughs) is it? Unless by fantastic beach you mean Margate, which we don't. (laughs) You could go to a night. You could go to, like,
1: Devon or Cornwall or somewhere like that. Devon
2: and Cornwall are full. I repeat, Devon and Cornwall are full.
0: Please do not travel to Devon or Cornwall. They are full. This has been a public service announcement.
1: But yes, I am having a very nice beach holiday on an island which is a very, very long way from full. Uh, It's been very nice.
0: Which is good for you and bad for the Thai tourist industry.
1: It's also been a little bit bit sad to go into restaurants where clearly they have had three customers today.
2: Uh, My experience of visiting the Arctic Circle in August was like that but obviously they would have had snow later and hence tourists later. Um, I'm sure that Thai beaches will get tourists again in due course, but it might be a little while.
1: Maybe a little while. I am compensating by just going into restaurants and eating more food than I really need to eat because I feel sad. So
2: That's
0: your excuse? That's the uh, human condition. I regularly eat more food than I need to eat because I am sad, which explains why I am this shape. <laughs>
2: You seem to be a very nice shape, John. I, oh, thank you, know. you Alison. <laughs>
0: That's the episode title right there.
2: <laughs> you seem to be sort of John-shaped, you know. I
0: Oh, well. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know what to... Yeah, all, all aglow.
2: Sorry, this, this is a body-positive podcast, which is not going to allow any body dysmorphia to get by. So we got
0: a letter of comment from Amazon Music
2: Podcast
0: Team. And they say, "Hello, podcaster. We're excited to let you know that Amazon Music and Audible will be adding podcasts to their respective services." This information is confidential. Whoops. <laughs> Thus concludes the letters of comment.
2: Know, did they actually?
0: Did they actually invite us to do anything, or? Uh, we can submit our podcast to Amazon, which I guess we should probably do. Like because it, they just link to it; they don't rehost it. So I have no, I have no like a priori objection to doing that.
2: Does Audible then say you can use your Audible credits to listen to Octothorpe? Because I would have to say that would be a terrible, terrible idea.
0: Yes, if you are listening to this and you have spent an Audible credit, please contact us, and we will send you a book.
2: <laughs> it... It might not be the book you'd want. <laughs> I can't promise it'll be a good book.
1: We'll record an audiobook of your choice. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that might be quite a lot of work. It might be
1: quite a the lot. The Very work.
2: Hungry Caterpillar.
1: <laughs> just send him a book. You guys must have enough books. You can just basically pick one at random and chuck yeah,
0: it in the post. It'll be fine. Um, okay, so... Um, I think probably we didn't get a lot of uh genuine letters of comment because people were in the chat in the last live episode, so um made their comments there and um we hope everyone enjoyed it, as we mentioned in the last episode, we shied away from talking about serious fanish concerns. Because um, Alison was riding that Con Zealand high, and I was sleep deprived owing to too many uh, board games. Um, but this episode is the episode of the serious fanish concerns. In the run up to Con Zealand, there was a lot of discussion in various fanish locales about the Saudi Arabia um, World Cup bid for Jeddah in 2022, which was going up against um, Chicago um the site selection vote resulted in Chicago being elected to Shikon 8 in a quite um convincing majority um but there was a lot of chat about Saudi Arabia prior to that happening um just for context Chicago received 89.8% of the vote with 517 uh ballots cast in its favor
2: Jeddah re bidding for 2026 because they basically went for the first year that there were no bids and 2026 is it. So I have now become Facebook friends and also Discord friends, I think, with um Adjat, who is the driving force behind the Jeddah con bid. Anna Smith-Spark, who was the instigator, is, is not somebody I know well, but I do know lots of people who signed it. And they're kind of, some of them are saying, well, we didn't really understand the WSFUS process and we wanted to make a statement about Saudi Arabia's suitability for Worldcons, which has left a lot of WSFUS people feeling very aggrieved, particularly the ones who went into their threads in the discussion on the Fantasy Society Facebook page, I think it was, that, that sparked this off and actually explained how it all worked before the letter was sent. And the letter got sent anyway, and it got picked up by The Guardian because The Guardian knows that A good way to generate hits, and therefore advertising sales, is to find storms in teacups and say, would it help if we put this storm into a bucket for you? So I think that made it quite a lot worse than it might otherwise have been. Because the Worcestershire members, as you would expect, voted overwhelmingly for Chicago, with the other votes being split evenly between Noah Ward and Jeddah. So it's not even that Jeddah got 10% of the votes. They got about 5% of the votes. But obviously, they weren't the sort of votes where people thought that they might win. So it's kind of petered out. And if it comes up again in 2026, I feel that um, smoths will ensure that there is a strong bid against it, because smoths do that sort of thing. Which brings us to 2023, where we have a different sort of problem, because we have Chengdu mounting as far as I can tell, a perfectly competent bid for China, which people don't want to win for many of the same reasons they don't want Jeddah to win, but without the excuse that the Jeddah people clearly didn't have the faintest idea what was involved in running a Worldcon, Um It's clear that Chengdu do know what is involved and can do it and have demonstrated that they could do it with a large a convention of similar sort of size and structure, but all Chinese, to which they invited a dozen smoths to come over and and watch. So they clearly can do it, so that's not an argument to not have have a Chengdu WorldCon. The arguments to have a not have a Chengdu WorldCon are much more difficult, problematic, and subtle. And they are up against Memphis, which is not the best bid for a third consecutive US WorldCon. In summary, Jeddah just kind of spun itself out and if it tries to do it again it'll it'll get competed with. But Chengdu's a much bigger issue because On most objective arguments, you would have to say that Chengdu have the better bid. So I think what
1: the open letter was calling for, basically they saw a place being allowed to bid for a Worldcon as an endorsement of that bid in some way because we put it on the ballot. And I mean, I've generally been of the opinion that fans will just not vote for things and that's okay. and I don't see it being allowed to bid as being an endorsement of it. But clearly some people do and have a problem with that. Um, and I think the problem you then get to is, okay, so what you want is for us not to allow places to bid because they fall below some human rights standard, but actually setting a standard for that is incredibly difficult. And I may, I'm may i not sure how I would go about doing it. I mean, for me, for me personally, I have no intention of going to Saudi Arabia. I think I may be allowed to go to Saudi Arabia provided, you know, I'm, cover my knees and shoulders and possibly hair at all times and so on but John
2: would have to sponsor us
0: (laughs) I think that would be very strange I cannot imagine either of you ever yeah no doesn't make any sense
1: (laughs) I I think it's I'm quite entertained by the idea that we would do what John tells us to do
0: (laughs) it hasn't happened at any point so far uh, I don't expect it ever to happen. I don't think I'd ever try. I've got too much self-preservation.
2: I believe that defenders of Saudi Arabia do say if you think that women do what their male sponsor tells you to, you clearly don't know very many Saudi Arabian women.
1: But yeah, I can I can see that you know Saudi Arabia is a place where I would not feel comfortable visiting, whereas I feel that China is a place where I would feel comfortable visiting. And... I think for the majority of Worldcon attendees, they would not feel a bit comfortable visiting Saudi Arabia, whereas many more of them would feel comfortable visiting China, possibly. I don't know. I haven't polled the Worldcon membership on that. But I think, I think setting, setting a bar seems to be a non-starter because I can't work out a way you would do it. And the way of doing it, which is it appears on the ballot and then we don't vote for them, seems better. But you're right. I mean, the other issue is that when the Jeddah bid was questioned about things like, okay, so it is illegal to be queer in in Saudi Arabia, their response was kind of, well, if you don't tell anyone, it won't be a problem, which is a completely unsatisfactory response. Whereas I don't think that particular issue is a problem in China. It's more... China's general human rights record and also their um, you know, recent actions in Hong Kong. So I think next year is going to be very interesting because next year you truly will be voting on is this a place that you feel comfortable visiting or you feel comfortable awarding a WorldCon to? And for Saudi Arabia there was never a chance we were gonna do that, so it wasn't really a question.
0: No, and this is um this is the problem because I think and me and Hispania had a long conversation about this. Um uh for those who don't know, uh Hispania is my wife. It is very difficult because I agree that I don't really see how you can come up with a um coherent single um statement of who should be allowed to bid for World Cons and who shouldn't be allowed to. Um I I think that would be very complicated. Um I think you'd run the risk of excluding countries that are fine or including countries that are not. Um and like I do also wonder whether the fact that we are a predominantly anglospheric community means that we would be more likely to write the rules in a way that made it easier for anglosphere countries in the anglosphere to uh, to not be penalized for their various issues than countries outside the anglosphere um see also like you know u.s police brutality and stuff like that i don't i don't think There are people in the community who have argued that the U.S. shouldn't be allowed to host Worldcons, including Patrick Nielsen Hayden. Um, But I don't know to what extent the U.S. is as bad as China. Um, I suspect the U.S. is not as bad as China, but equally, I am married to a U.S. citizen and I've been to the U.S. a lot. I've never been to China. So it may well be that my experiences, and my privilege, bias me in my um, decision making on that. The issue is how you come up with rules that you could reasonably enforce. and then if you manage to do that, what body would reasonably enforce them? So I can see an argument that it would be like fairer to have a codified rule um, rather than discussing it every time there's a problematic worldcon over again. But I equally don't really know what that would look
2: like. Okay, so every worldcon is problematic in its own way. I was going to say all unproblematic worldcons are alike, but I don't think there are any unproblematic worldcons. So I th- I think... I think there are issues which might cause you to vote for or against any Worldcon that are not entirely who is the team doing this and and are they competent to do it.
1: I think I did see when people were discussing the Saudi Arabian bid, a kind of assumption that they must be backed by Saudi Arabian government money, or they were doing this in some way to get themselves visas to visit other countries. And it seems that we make that assumption about the Saudi Arabian bid in a way I've never seen us make about any other place other than China. Um, At least some of the people behind the Saudi Arabian bid have been visiting Worldcon since at least 2014, so there's no reason to think they're doing it just so they can leave the country. And I think they genuinely are just fans of science fiction and Worldcons who would like to bring one to their country, but haven't really thought through how they'd do that or how their country would... um, be perceived by the people voting. I don't see any reason to immediately leap to assume that bids from countries that haven't historically had world comms, especially non-Anglosphere ones, are somehow being supported or kind of contrived in a way that we don't usually jump to think about, say, the, you know, Finland bid.
2: I agree. I mean, Finland is semi-Anglosphere.
1: I just thought of Helsinki as it's the only place you can think of which is a new place we've taken world kind of that's non-English speaking.
2: Yeah, so, so, so um, the, the question of whether whether China can... So there is a certain amount of racism in the mix, isn't there?
0: So I can see a situation where in a year's time, there is an open letter in The Guardian from a similar group of people who are decrying the Chinese Worldcon bid for human rights problems, especially if what's happening in Hong Kong keeps going in the wrong direction, which it looks likely to. Um, and we have to have a much much more difficult conversation about whether or not because obviously i think the three of us agree that saudi arabia is clearly over a line their treatment of women um as a country is is clearly and unacceptable and lgbt
1: yeah
0: and lgbt yes their treatment of many people who are not cisgendered straight men is clearly um, a problem um china I think it would be difficult to argue, does not also have some human rights problems. Um, you could you could bandy around some pretty serious words um, about their treatment. I am personally opposed to a Chinese Worldcom because of various um, problems they've got with their human rights record in Hong Kong and like genocides they've perpetrated and, and things like that. Um, but I think the case against China is much, much less clear cut than it is against Saudi Arabia. And my problem is like, what if the next time there's another country where the situation is less clear-cut but in a different way or less clear-cut in a way that means that WUSPUS members don't find it problematic but people who are not um, currently WUSPUS members might find it very problematic. If we keep doing this on an ad hoc basis, do we start running into problems where our biases as a community end up um, putting us in situations where we have world in places that actually probably we shouldn't? What do you think?
1: I think you're correct and we really need to brainstorm ways in which we can come to some mechanism on this. I think you're right in that we can't leave it ad hoc. I think also if you'd asked me five years ago if a Chinese WorldCom bid sounded like a good idea, I would have been much more positive than I am right now. Um so we know things can change quite quite quickly as well. And 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 I'm trying to think of like what would be the way of doing this. Do we need a standard questionnaire so that we can ask bids to not just give us information about how much it costs to fly there and where the nearest airport is and you know whether you can smoke in their hotel rooms but we actually need to say you know are there restrictions on who can enter your country and what are
2: they Um, I think those sorts of questions are already covered in the Fannish Inquisition I've also seen the suggestion that the code of conduct should be submitted along with the bid paperwork which seems to be to me not a bad idea because as soon as you start bidding you need to have a code of conduct Glasgow's got one you know, um, and that's not a very big imposition, I think. Every con by the time it files paperwork, every bid by the time it files paperwork will already have a code of conduct.
0: Well, and and I would say that in the case that having a code of conduct is a significant imposition on a bid, then it's a sort of bid we need to be significantly imposing ourselves upon. Um, so that kind of works either way.
2: But the thing that I actually wanted to say is I disagree with both of you that this cannot just be left to the community. The community is all we have. Um, as you know, EasterCon runs without any sort of formal organisation whatsoever, and it's been doing so for, for you know, 70 years now. Um, and I feel that as long as you can sustain it, having the least amount of bureaucracy you possibly can – is a good and worthy thing. I, I feel that um, Wilcon has too much bureaucracy, which is probably a, a how would we, what things would we take out of the Whispers Constitution altogether um, conversation for another time.
0: I think the words we do not want it to be ad hoc and the words we do not want it to come from the community are two very separate statements. I want it to come from the community. I want it to come from the community in a way that is not having the conversation over again every year in a way that doesn't allow for any nuanced thoughts. Because I think that's what doing it ad hoc actually means. I think it means you do it with shouting at each other on soapboxes. And I disagree that that is the best way. Um, And I think EasterCon works very well as a completely... Like anarchic thing, but i don 't think Eastercon is ever going to have to tally the human rights abuses of Saudi Arabia and China and decide which is worse, so I think Eastercon has a little bit more wiggle room for not for talking about these things once a year at the bid session in a way that is relatively unnuanced because the nuances aren 't
2: as important I I, mean, I think I think that 's fair
1: so I have a, a few things to say. One is that you say things are covered by the Fannish Inquisition but I think the thing is, we have this kind of codified set of questions now that, that bids answer before the finishing position and put online. And they are mostly to do with the kind of practical and logistical things. And maybe we do need some questions in there that are just as, as routine to every bid, which are about, you know, can you tell us, um, you know, how welcoming your country is to different people? Um, I mean, it's going to be very difficult to think, of ways, you know, there's no way that a bid with from a country with human rights issues is going to write down. And also we have this massive human rights issue. But if you have to write down, say for Saudi Arabia, this the you know these activities are punishable by death, then it does at least give you an idea of where this country falls. Um second thing I think I would say is that Isicon does kind of move along ad hoc. But yeah, I think as John said, the issues are very different because the worst thing anyone's really proposed is whether we should move an EasterCon to Jersey.
0: Tobes' house. <laughs> Tobes' house
1: in 2021. Um, and also, I'm this is for a different podcast, but I am very worried that we will find a point at which the kind of whole ad hoc nature of EasterCon collapses under some kind of stress like a pandemic. My third point was going to be and we may be unearthing a completely different thing entirely now is that I think the barrier for entry to deciding where Eastercons go is lower than the barrier for entry deciding where Worldcons go. We still need people who, you know, vote on World cons to be part of the community. But at the moment, the financial barrier to doing that is pretty high. And there's not really a way around it under the current constitution.
0: The barrier to entry for voting on a Worldcon is less than the barrier to entry for voting on an Eastercon. Because to vote for the Eastercon, you have to go to the Eastercon. Um, to go to to vote vote on WorldCon site selection, you only have to spend thirty quid. Um, so, so I actually think, although the fact that WorldCon is gated in the way it is, I think means it means it feels less inclusive. And I understand why you said that. I think if you actually like do the cost analysis, unless you happen to live in the city where the Eastercon is ha- happening,
1: it's true. But I was more thinking, like, if you are at the con, you can vote, right? If you are at an oh. any con, you can vote. Yeah, if you are at a WorldCon then you have to pay more money to vote. That's true. And also I was thinking more kind of the barriers for getting involved. Like if there's an EasterCon bid and you think it is going to go to place and you don't think the EasterCon should go, I think there is a lower entry to getting up another bid to try and send it somewhere else than there is for World Cup. But I think we have gone kind of way off piece at this point.
0: I will just say very quickly that in general, I quite like the fact, I think, in general, I think the last... Two decades have shown that Eastercons can undergo quite significant, for want of a better word, constitutional crises. And still, the complete lack of any codified constitution has just been fine. So, I think the goodwill of British fandom and the desire for Eastercons to happen will probably mean that Eastercon is fine without any codification. But I think that you're right that this is a much larger. Before we move on from this discussion, we have been talking about whether or not there should be more codification about which countries um, are suitable for Worldcon bidding and which countries are not. Um, Cheryl Morgan wrote a post um, on the argument for an incorporated WSFUS, um and having more continuity in Worldcon and the fact that if you had that, you'd be better able to implement these kind of long-running policies. Um, I don't particularly know if i have many ideas about whether or not that's a good thing um
2: i think it's another thing we should if we're going to talk about codification it's a thing we could take when we talk about codification more generally
0: but i've put it in the show notes so if you want to read her arguments um please go and uh please go and read it it's a good article
2: i also observe that Wusfus only really its entire procedural system is used as a defense against people making affecting any change. So this year it took them 6 minutes to totally run a coach and horses through their procedures in order to clear up all their business because the people who are in charge wanted that to happen. Um so it as it works at the moment it's a very firm preventer of Disrupting the order. If you want change in WUSFUS, you have to put the the constitution's essentially unchangeable um, without the process of persuading people that uh, persuading individuals that that, that they might get on board. You know, no, even if 95% of the Worldcon membership backed something as transparently sensible if the 5% of wusfus who are wusfus nerds didn't think that was a good idea it could not happen and and that feels to me to be a problem that that wusfus should deal with and and that, that so that its constitution and its procedures have not necessarily led to a a good democratic state at this point fair George R.R. Martin,
0: a man who is famous for writing long, rambling novels with lots of racism and sexism in them, has turned out to be a man who is a fan of long, rambling things that contain lots of sexism and racism, which has apparently surprised large amounts of fandom. Tell me more about how this all happened, Alison
2: and Liz. I have some sympathy for Con Zealand here.
1: So it it did surprise me because I think if you come to me five years ago and said, do you think... George R. R. Martin would be a good Hugo Toastmaster. Then, based off what evidence I had from like seeing it at the odd WorldCon, I probably would have said, "Yeah, he'd be quite fun. He loves WorldCons. He's quite popular and famous, and people will enjoy it." And it would have turned out that I was
2: totally wrong. People did enjoy it. You just saw the storm in a teacup. This probably was a storm in a bucket. In fact. Um, but lots and lots of people did enjoy his history. They felt it um reflected back to Silverberg's um years as Toastmaster and his way of of, of connecting and tie binding the community. I, I think those people are totally wrong. Um and I think his speech was was very unfounded. But I agree that um didn't have a lot of choice. However, I'm going to do a little bit of fis- fan history here, which is that the Toastmaster, and you could tell this from the thing, it comes from the days when the Hugos were a banquet. And so if you're having a banquet, you then have an after-dinner speaker and they're a Toastmaster and they give the toasts, which in this case are the Hugos. And it's all part of that very clubby sort of thing. Right. The problem of Toastmaster as an a guest of honour of the Worldcon is that it's been a problematic role for a very long time. And what most Worldcons that are sensible about this do is that they have, they do not have the Toastmaster role, they have a Hugo host role, which is not a guest of honour of the convention, which is just a programme participant like any other, which means you can tell them what to do. If you invite somebody to be to your Toastmaster, you probably can't tell them what to do. Having said that, Con Zealand almost certainly, given that George had said he wanted to do it and given that they were looking at running a convention in New Zealand and they were worried about the whole issue about whether people would come and all of that, at the point at which George said he would like to be the Toastmaster, I don't think they had a lot of choice. And it was at a point where... I don't think he was as problematic. I think he has become more problematic. Um I think he's cl- he was clearly very upset by what happened with the John W. Campbell Award and and decided that he was going to use what he saw as his chance to make a speech to 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 weigh in on that.
1: I think things have changed and the 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 illustration of this is I was talking about LundCon because um my phone likes to send me pictures of what I was doing six years ago and apparently I was, you know, looking over this vast, empty convention centre that was shortly to be filled with people. But anyway, the, the point is that at time we did the retro Hugos and we did them, I think, the same way Con Zealand did them, which is we had a special night where we put them on and people dressed up and there was dancing and so on. And we awarded them to, you know, John W. Campbell. And I don't recall hearing a lot of Uh, discussion about that after the fact I think it was just accepted that yes we gave them to John W Campbell whereas six years later we gave some retro hugos to John W Campbell and that is very definitely not a thing that went without comment so I think that shows how basically in six years we've shifted from a thing that no one even really blinked an eye about it's possible there were people but I, I didn't see anything about it to a thing where many people are saying no this is you know, a thing which undermines the Hugos and it's a disgrace that we presented any other awards in the same award ceremony that undermines them. So I think it is an illustration of how things can shift quite quickly and people don't necessarily shift along with it.
0: I think that Alison is right, that there are people who probably did really enjoy the look at the fan history that George gave. Lots of them. I think my main problem is that the Hugos are badly structured to allow that kind of thing. Like because it would have been much better if George had given like a like a bunch of Hugo's and then there had been a thirty-minute period where George had given like a lecture on fan history, maybe with some like props and slides and a script, maybe, um, and then like he had given the rest of the Hugo's and he and and it, and notwithstanding any comments that Martin made about um John Campbell and how great he was in light of the fact that the Campbell award uh was changed to the astounding award after um speech last year um i think that could have been really interesting because I, I do think there's value to fan history i do think obviously martin has a quite um broad view of that
2: okay on a point of order there was a separate programme item entitled George and Bob Have a Chat or something like that, where George R.R. R. Martin and Bob Silverberg sat down for an hour to chew the fat in exactly this fashion.
0: Clearly the Toastmaster is there to impart some of their personality on the ceremony. I think in this case, the criticism was primarily that it became too much about Martin but I don't think the answer was to completely shift it the other way. And I think the fact that you made the point earlier that there were people who enjoyed his interludes means that there is clearly a sweet spot here, notwithstanding the thing where he defended Campbell in a way that was, frankly, a rebuttal of both last year's ceremony and most of the acceptance speeches
2: from this year. The events director for Luncon, who was responsible for our Retro Hugo and Hugo ceremony, was Helen Montgomery. If Helen Montgomery had been events director of this, they would not have taken a number of interesting structural choices. The, the fact that people have been trying for 50 years to reduce the length of the Hugo ceremony appears to have completely passed Zealand by in terms of their design of the ceremony. Yes. It, I mean, in my personal experience of this was that I sent them my um, presenter speech and they said, oh... This is this is fine, but it could be a bit longer.
0: It was the perfect length.
2: It's longer. That's that's the length I did was longer, so it was shorter than that. So, but it, it is still not a thing that I would expect any conven ceremony director to ever say to any presenter. Could you make that a bit longer, please?
0: There is a video on YouTube called When the Toastmaster Talks Less that cuts a lot of the um, content from Martin out of the ceremony and focuses more on the people who won awards. And it is is one hour and 41 minutes long. And I think there is a coherent argument because it doesn't remove the points, I don't think, where he actually gives the awards to people. I think it um, just reduces the speechifying.
2: It still has plenty, it still has plenty of George R. R. Martin's personality in it. I think this belief that the Toastmasters' personality won't come through is wrong. Yeah, and that's the thing. And he could have done a 20-minute long,
0: he could have done a 20-minute long talk in the middle, and it would have been a tight two hours. And that would have been, I think, pretty much the perfect Hugo ceremony. Because you would have had enough context, you would have had a focus on the winners... Uh, it would have been two hours, which is a, a, a fine length of time. And I think, actually, the, the in-person ceremonies could afford to be a bit longer because people are in a hall chatting with their mates. But when you're sitting at home, three or four hours is is pushing it. But I don't... I just... Yeah, I, I'm bewildered by the choices they made because um, they could have had a really tight, nice two-hour-long ceremony and they, they didn't, and I don't know why.
2: Con Zealand had a huge job of work to do to convert a physical convention into a virtual one. They spent, as far as I can see, most of their quite limited resource to make this happen on actually tying together the nuts and bolts to make it happen, and for the Hugo ceremony, they tried to make it as much like a physical ceremony as possible um Now, my feeling was that they should probably have spent rather more time on the um fun engineering parts of making that happen on the on the ephemeral bits and pieces of what it is to be a Worldcon. They did do quite well, actually. And um, we're going to talk about a convention that's not done quite quite so well in a little bit, but they could still have done more there. I went to see a different award ceremony as part of my guff trip it was, it was, it was the Aurealis Awards and they just did it on Zoom. They had a YouTube thing so you, everyone could watch. They had all the presenters and all the nominees and all the acceptors on Zoom and they just had... Did and they had some a nice skit at the beginning they had toastmasters with some flavor to them um and it was completely fine and it wasn't grand in the way the hugo ceremony tries to be grand but this year the, it mostly just came across as as amateurish and not in a good way rather than stylish which is i think what they were probably going for um and and, and it would have been fine just on as a as a Zoom award ceremony, but I don't, I don't think they could have countenanced that. It wouldn't have, it, it it would have been hard for for the tech crew who were like, oh, we need all these direct live links to to, to go with that.
0: Yeah, I, I must admit, I didn't really understand why um, they kept coming back to George in his actual house live. I didn't, because I appreciate that the Hugo's are kept under wraps, and I appreciate that um, the winners are not known. And so there is a confidentiality problem. And that's why you don't, in general, tell the people awarding each Hugo in advance who's won the Hugo. Because there are problems if you do that. But
2: Has there ever been a problem? Do you think that I would have told people who won if I'd known? In this
0: case, given that George R. Martin did all of the opening of envelopes and telling people who had won, and given that George R. Martin is presumably quite good at keeping things under his hat, given that he has to keep things under his hat vis-a-vis, like what's going to happen in Game of Thrones and stuff like that. I kind of feel like they just looped him in and then had him record all the envelope openings um, in the original interstitials. I don't understand why they didn't. It felt very strange.
2: You may remember, and I would invite listeners, Nicholas White and or Tammy Coxon to comment on this. um, The Hugo balloting process was contracted and quite late this year and i think it's very likely that the awards were not concluded before the point where george rr martins um video recording elements had to be done
0: that's a fair point
2: i know that they did have they did have a tech team with george in santa fe it wasn't just george and his and his webcam they did do quite a lot of work they, you know they flew people out to be with him um so so there's, there's they, they did they, they put a lot of tech into this
0: i think but then i would argue that like if it was the case that he had already recorded the interstitials i think i probably would have just had like the name appear on screen with the man reading over the the or well it was a man but all the lady what did it alternate
2: it was a man it was um it was norman i think um the co-chair of the convention oh was it Who, whose voice of god in the hugo ceremony i believe so
0: but like I, th- I would have just had the voice, the voice, the narrator of the ceremony announce the winners because you could have saved so much time if you hadn't. You would have reduced the risk of something going wrong because something did go wrong and it started late. And you could have made it a lot snappier if you hadn't had George sitting in his theatre doing the actual opening envelopes.
2: I think the actual tech was extremely complicated and, and they were very, they were all exhausted and. And very happy that they'd actually managed to hold all the technical bits of it together.
1: I think, I think I agree with John. I think if you've made it so complicated that all your energy is going into making sure your complicated tech works and you need to take a step back and say, OK, this is where all our people points are going. Is this where they should actually be going? I am very much with you that they should have basically pre-recorded everything apart from if you knew you were going to have uh, an acceptance speech live, I think that was nice to have because it was really nice to have those kind of on-the-spot acceptances. But if that was also complicated, just record everyone's speeches, edit it into one thing and just play it. Because there were quite a lot of, you know, moments where it didn't quite cut back and forth nicely, moments where it didn't quite sound as good. even if you had to record George like the day before, reading out all the winners and then edit that in quickly, I think that might just have been easier because then you would also know, okay, so we have no speeches in here from the winners and it is already two and a half hours long. You know, we we would know by that point that you
2: have a problem.
0: Yeah.
2: Oh, it is certainly true that, that the Worldcon knew in advance that they had, they could kind of see a slow motion car crash around the Hugos and it actually... I realise now was overshadowing some of the things that people were doing earlier in the convention. And I think my favourite example of this is that on about the Tuesday after the WorldCon don't I mean you can check the date. Um Discon announced the hosts of the Hugo ceremony next year. And they had a splash and they said, Here are Hugo announce. Here are Hugo hosts. We're announcing it today. And what I learnt in chat, um, sorry for telling tales out of school, is that this announcement had been planned before Con Zealand So Discon knew before Con Zealand that announcing um, apparently completely unproblematic Hugo hosts the day after Con Zealand was going to be a really, really good thing to do. So it's not that people didn't know there was a problem.
1: I have one more thing to add, which is, um, For many, many years, Robert Silverberg would stand up and talk at Hugo's. He has not for several years. And there was a decision made, obviously, this year to invite him back. And he added 15, maybe 20 minutes, it seemed like, of just kind of very rambling chat mostly about John W. Campbell. So even if you found it very hard to say to Martin, okay, we need to shorten your links there too long, this is going to be very long, at some point someone made the decision that they would give a massive chunk of the Hugo ceremony over to someone where basically it would be known what he does, which is taught for a very long time. And
2: that seemed a very baffling decision to me. I mean, I believe that Bob... I believe that Bob Silverberg is the only person left who has attended every work on. I, I mean, I'm going to do the thing about the reason why we are told to honour our elders is that it is sometimes difficult.
0: <laughs>
2: now, I don't... I would not have given him space at the Hugo ceremony, but I do think that... It, clearly, I, I assume that what happened is that George wanted to do it and George wanted to involve Bob and George wanted to hark back to the old days. Yeah, and And... You can see why, if you're in this big community that seems very disparate, if you're an old man, it probably seems enormously disparate compared to the times that it was just you and your mates in the bar. And, and you can see that old people would have a lot of nostalgia for when everyone knew everyone. Um, and helping people understand that there are some merits to having a broader community where not everybody knows everybody else and not everybody does that. That doesn't necessarily mean that's a bad thing. I think you're right.
1: I think, you know, he may be the only person who has been to every Worldcon and we do need to find a way to recognise that. Um, But I just don't think the way to recognise that is to have quite a long segment of the Hugos. And in particular, it wasn't even a segment that seemed to kind of link his whole history with Worldcons together. It seemed to be a segment which talked about things very much in the past. And this is really my problem with the whole thing is if you're going to do Worldcon history, I want you to do that in a way that links it up to the present and future of the Hugos. And this just didn't do it. It seemed to kind of stop at the point where they sort of stopped maybe enjoying Worldcon so much. I mean, I think my final comment on it is the comment I made about 10 minutes into the ceremony where I said something like, you haven't missed anything yet. He's still rambling on. And that was still true three hours later when I went back to sleep.
2: I was about five minutes into the ceremony. I was in a Zoom chat with a number of very interesting people. um, And we watched the ceremony and about five minutes in the first, it was like when you're a thunderstorm is about to start and that it is not raining. And then you just feel a drop of rain and and somebody made a comment and then somebody else did. And then it was just like (laughs) a torrent of, oh my goodness, how is this happening? With a certain amount of yeah, well we kinda of knew this was gonna be what happened. But but it was it was embarrassing for the WorldCon and it, it was it was embarrassing for the WorldCon we want to be. And and can I also say that the retro Hugos are an abomination and should not be they should people should stop doing them. Um they certainly shouldn't increase the number of years for which they could be done. And this is another I'm looking at Wusfas here because this is something where Wussfuss extended the range of Years for which Retro Hugos could be awarded, making it... So now you can award a Retro Hugo for a, a Worldcon where there wasn't even a Worldcon. And, oh, God. And that's what leads us to this.
1: I think I have previously made my opinions on the Retro Hugos. No one
2: on this podcast, which is, let's just stop now. No, ne- was, they should never have started. Time. It was a terrible, appalling idea. Anyway. The-
0: I, I quite like them. But uh, <laughs> I'm not going to... I don't feel strongly enough about it to defend that against... Uh, <laughs> the disagreement uh but if you are listening Uh, to this also thinking i quite like them you are not alone why
2: do you why do you quite like them john
0: just that they're kind of neat (laughs) i said i told you i don't have a good argument i understand i understand all the problems with them the problem with me is that my default state is quite liking things uh and that is difficult (laughs) um
1: Whereas my default state is loathing for everything that has not yet
2: proved itself worthwhile.
0: (laughs) I mean, I'm not trying to imply that, but I am thinking it very loudly.
2: (laughs) Enthusiasm for new things quickly followed by disenchantment and rage.
0: Disenchantment and rage is the name of your um, next fanzine.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Is that the new name of your sex tape, John? It's the name of your next fanzine.
0: It's my podcast appropriate version
2: i'm not sure that
0: disenchantment and rage is the name of your sex tape
1: (laughs) i do hope not
0: um and i am not sure that delving deeper into the (laughs) Uh... reconvene 2020 uh it was a convention
2: blinking you'll miss it
0: it was a flash con.
2: I mean, have a bit of a lie-in or be doing something else for a couple of hours and it's gone, it turns out. Six hours long. Five hours long, six hours long,
0: something in that region. Um, Liz, did you go to Reconvene 2020?
1: No, uh, because as as stated this podcast, many times there are many good things about virtual events and you can join them from around the world. But Reconvene 2020 was exactly 12 hours behind my time zone. And so I think it took place between... 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. So, no. I don't love conventions enough to stay up literally all night while on my holidays.
0: It's um That is a good... That is a fair comment. Here it started at 4 p.m. and went until 11 p.m., 10 p.m. I think
2: it was 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Yes. So, 4 till 10 for us. That's good beer drinking time. It was.
0: Um... And I went, and I believe uh, Alison also went.
2: They had some apparently excellent panels with excellent people on, who, in fact, I did quite want to see. But because I was doing something else with some other people, I I missed the Ted Chang one, which was the one I particularly wanted to go to, because I've never actually heard him speak. And, um, And then they were all just kind of panels. And I was like, well, you know, panels. And then they flowed into discussions in chat which i i understand were quite good discussions in chat um which were also happening during the panels as well as as after the panels and there were discord fan tables um and i spent some time hanging out in discord fan tables most notably the glasgow table but i mean my comment on text chat is is party like it's 1999 and um i feel like I feel like text chat does not do it for me. And they didn't. They had Discord chat tables. But again, because I was doing other things involving Zoom that weekend, every time I try to run Discord video, I have to reboot my computer before Zoom will ever work again. And and that is very tedious. So I, I, I would have definitely joined a Discord table if there'd been somebody I really wanted to talk to on it. But there kind of wasn't. Um, and in fact, they there weren't that many people there were only maybe typically 20 or 25 people on on discord chat tables and in, in you know in the in the audio and video um and as always i'm at several different conventions this weekend and one of the other ones is um the stereoscopic photography convention which is is despite the fact that it is mostly old white dudes they are enthusiastically bra- embracing new technology because 3d they are testing out a thing called high fidelity where you can wander around an audio map and and see a cluster of people and then find yourself in an audio chat with those people which you will not be able to hear if you move away from them i I think this is an i want to try this out with a bunch of my mates but it is only audio rather than video so we're, we're, we're kind of i still don't think the perfect answer exists but anyway so it wasn't social enough for me there was no there were no zoom parties i like zoom parties
0: so um yeah so um uh, i went to reconvene i saw the ted chang panel it was um very good that was the panel i ran away from the zoom that i was in with you and claire and mark uh to go and see it was very interesting i do find i think i agree with you i'm not i did not find the discord for reconvene was particularly compelling it, it, If 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 that I have been to online conventions where the Discord has been compelling, um, but I found that the reconvened one was perhaps not busy enough or not varied enough, or there was something about it that just, I didn't really, it it was fun, I was fine, uh, I was checking it, but, like, it didn't feel like it was replacing the social aspect of a real con for me. Um, And I remember what you said um, last episode about Con Zealand having kind of eight-hour blocks... So you, um, you suggested that it would have been a good idea to have like five hours of panels and three hours of pa- parties and then repeat. And I do wonder whether reconvene would have been better because they had six hours of panels, which seems like an appropriate number of panels. And then if they just had two hours of parties at the end, the party was decided at 10, finished at midnight for me. Um, and then I could have gone to bed and I would have gotten all of the, the socializing with, with different fans, uh, uh around the world.
2: They are test running options for Boscone and there's a limit to how much convention they could pull together in a very short time because Reconvene was put together very quickly. I, I think the the plan would be to, to expand the social spaces. I mean they certainly knew that they weren't as focused on on party on generating parties as as other cons might be.
0: In general, I think the model of having like a short convention which is maybe sort of eight to nine hours long which is kind of five hours of, of panel and programming and then kind of three hours of, of socializing and parties, is a a model I would like to see become a thing where you can just, you know, you and a few mates, if you're an author, or even if you're a fan, right? I go to fan run conventions that did this, um, you know, you just put on, you know, maybe two or three streams of five panels, and then do a big Zoom with breakout rooms at the end for people to come and just chat. You know, did you see that panel? That was good, wasn't it? I've got a beer. Where do you come from? You know, like in regular convention bars. And that would have been very good. So I do think that they could have, it would have been almost perfect with just like, you know, a couple of hours of Zoom on the end.
2: But but remembering that the Zoom models are, is still not a great model for parties and I am I am still looking for alternatives that make socialising better.
0: What we need is we need Discord to have the Zoom video features If Discord could buy Zoom or Zoom could buy Discord, whichever is richer, and then just fold all the good bits of both, perfect.
2: Okay, so so it's not uncommon for amalgamations of this kind to end up with all the bad bits of both.
0: Yes, that is a very good point. And again, we come to the fundamental difference in outlooks. Um, No, yes, yeah. I mean, I am mostly being facetious. But I think if if Discord had better um, video and kind of live socialising options, I do think
2: yeah, I mean, Discord does show you who's in which chat, which is the critical, critical thing. People want to be able to look at clusters of people and go, oh, gosh, Bertie Smith is in that cluster. I haven't seen him since 1924. We can talk about how shocking it is that they changed the name of the John W. Campbell Award. OK, so... So but i don't think this is a also i 'm going to talk a little bit about um the difference between british and u s outlooks on conventions because it's not it 's not uncommon for American conventions to not really have any space where you could socialize in the way that the British socialize in the bar um, to the extent that people the same people who are worried about um problematic things in conventions. Often say that one of the things that is problematic about conventions is the bar, um, which, speaking as somebody who holds up in the bar at the second they arrive at the convention and, and can only be winkled out by, by biological imperatives. Um, I, I'm slightly worried about this, but I do understand that there is an issue about alcohol and its relationship to fun, that the British may have a bigger interest, a bigger problem with. Um, maybe we should have that as a topic for a future episode.
0: The weekend of the 21st to the 23rd of August is NASFIC, the U.S. uh, National Science Fiction Convention, which is held in years where the Worldcon is held outside the U.S. Obviously, because the Internet is um, in some ways outside the U.S., NASFIC is happening this year. And so um, Alison, I believe, is going to be on the program. and She's going to be talking about her guff trip. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, Alison?
2: Well, I'm hoping to be talking about my guff trip, but it is very much the very first cut of a talk that I have additionally offered to Futuricon, uh, where I really will be. That'll be October. And I hope that by that point, I will have a proper presentation where I talk for half an hour and then take questions about my guff trip. But this one's much going to be much closer to, I have a list of bullet points and I'll talk for half an hour, and then take questions. Nice, um, But it won't be... I won't have worked it up properly. Um, I I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, it's got a more global um, reach than it normally does because online, um, it turns out that shifting your body clock five hours late so that you can get up at noon and go to bed at five o'clock in the morning is, is not that hard compared to going to New Zealand Um and I'm hoping it'll be good. Again, I will obviously be looking at it from the point of view of how is it managing its social spaces? Because really, how is convention, how are conventions managing their social spaces is the thing I'm more interested in than anything else right now, um, because I don't think we'll be meeting again in purpose, person for a good while.
0: Next weekend, I am going to Virtually Expo, which is the online edition of the UK Games Expo. I'm going to be playing Arkham Horror with Liz as part of that convention. Um, Liz won't be at the convention, but she will be playing Arkham Horror with me while I am at the convention. So she'll sort of be one degree of Kevin Bacon from the convention. One degree of Bob Silverberg.
2: Is this technically ghosting or is this more kind of some weird tentacled version of a ghost? (laughs) um
0: no the uk gaze expo is free except for role-playing games so um uh you don't there's no really there's no real way to ghost um but yes
2: yeah no I, i i have a membership though i'm not i am not certain how much of the weekend it's my niece's 18th birthday next weekend and we're going to an actually not socially distanced family party. It is going to be outdoors. But I I think the garden it's being held in, the number of people who are going, which is not that many, like about 20, could not literally fit in a socially distanced way into that garden, which is about the size of this study.
1: I, I think I would say I am technically going to UK Games Expo, but only to play this one Arkham Horror game and someone in the Arkham Horror game has to do all the complicated bits and that will be John.
0: It will. I'm looking forward to it,
2: and we are definitely going to do Octothorpe plays Arkham Horror as a as an episode that we can drop in sometime when we can't record.
0: Yes, we're committing to it now. This is all going in the episode. Um, so you heard it here fo- first, folks. Are we?
2: Are we going to do that? I think it would be fun. What do I need to uh, do? I need to buy something to make that happen, or can we just do it with kind of online versions, or what? Uh,
0: you need to buy Tabletop Simulator.
2: Uh-huh, okay, T- send me send me links. I mean, it's just going to be two hours of Alice and asking questions, and then we'll make that. And then we'll have to find a date for that because it can't be our regular recording time. Because if we do it at our regular recording time, it will not fulfil the function of being an extra episode that we can drop in in an emergency.
0: And we could when we when we draw the podcast, we could also like do a YouTube video so you can see the pictures if you want to. Okay, so that was the twelfth episode of the Octothorpe podcast, and it's goodbye from me.
1: It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.
0: The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin McLeod and com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license.
2: Can I t- can I mention my anecdote about podcast editing? What because I want to get this in and Jonathan can use it or not and he chooses, which is that I happened to listen to the unedited version of my favourite podcast the other day. Um, I did this because they recorded a day late, which meant that when I was accustomed to listening to it, it wasn't there. So I went and grabbed the the members only live bootleg and they spent, for example, 20 minutes talking about what all they were going to discuss things in and honestly i have huge support now for everybody who edits podcasts as i always do but um it it it, it is an amazingly entertaining podcast that was much less entertaining in the non-edited version
0: this is one of the reasons why um and this will go in the after show but this is one of the reasons why whenever there's a podcast that's like you can subscribe and get access to the unedited version it's like yeah because i want to pay you money to make your product worse it'd be like if apple said you can pay a section grand and you have to make the computer i be like nah you're all right i'll pay the less money for the better thing it doesn't i understand that it's like an easy way and i understand why they do it and i'm not criticizing them at all but it's never been a usb for me at all because i'm like yeah editing
2: yeah but i did want to listen to it on friday morning so there's that
0: yeah that's fair I, I tried it with do, do the Right Thing, have a podcast, uh, a Patreon tier where you can get the unedited podcast, and I tried it and I was like, oh no, the editing does make it better. I shall just listen to the edited versions.
2: I have been to see, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue being recorded. Oh yes. And I can confirm that although these are very funny people who are professionally funny and famous for it, it is still much better on the radio. Yes.
1: So I listened to, I listened to, I'm just going to put my anecdote in here. Nice. I listen to a cycling podcast and during the Grand Tours, they do a daily episode and the, you know, the stage will finish for the day at maybe 5 p.m. And usually the episode would have been out by, you know, 11 p.m. So somehow these guys record an episode and it gets edited in like five hours flat. And I don't know whether they just naturally sit down and do, you know, 45 minutes of coherent stuff that doesn't require editing. Or their editors are magic. But either way, there's some magic involved there to get that done. And I'm, you know, now I have a podcast, I'm even more impressed about how good it sounds.